well, the clinical social work isn't that cool or that smart. Would you say it was? It sounded cool. And it, yeah, it's, it was a lot of work. I'll say that. <laughs> it was a lot of work. Um, thanks for that nice introduction. I'm so glad to be back. I was here last year and really had a great time with y'all. So I, I'm just glad to be back. When Jennifer and Kara said, hey, we're, um, we'd like you to come speak again. Here's our theme. Does the Bible really say dot, dot, dot? Do you have any ideas? And I'm like, yes. Does the Bible really say we have to be nice? They're like, oh, okay. <laughs> Should be fun. So, so I'm in the bathroom last week. Actually, I go to the bathroom every day, but I was in the bathroom <laughs> multiple times. Um, so, but last week, I was in this bathroom over here, and um, a lady came up and she said, so I hear you're going to talk about whether or not the Bible really says we have to be nice. So does it? And, and, it was, and it struck me because I thought it was almost like, please tell me that it says we don't have to because it's so hard to be nice. You know, it was, it's almost like we're hoping. We're, you guys are on the edge of your seat going, please tell me that the Bible doesn't say that. Um, but I, I, I like this topic because I feel like God's been walking me through a journey about niceness. And spoiler alert, I'm going to actually tell you what I think the Bible says about it before I unpack it for you. I don't believe the Bible says we have to be nice. In fact, I would be so bold to say that we have not been called to niceness. We have been called to something much greater. And I would also say that for some of us, our niceness is getting in the way of our righteousness. So you can disagree with me, that's okay. I'm going to just humbly offer some thoughts, some things that I have found in Scripture, some things from my own experience and my own life, my own path. And you are welcome to, I mean, please test it out. Test it with Scripture. Test it with your experience. Um, don't take my word for it. Uh, but I, I have had a lifetime. The Lord has been showing me this. Have you ever regretted asking God to help you grow? There's, it's a good prayer. It's a good prayer, um, but I have found that you don't really grow without a little bit of pain, and sometimes a lot of bit of pain, as my daughter used to say. Not a little bit, a lot of bit. So sometimes it's a lot of bit of pain, but here's what, here's what God's been revealing to me, that while I have spent a lot of my life being nice, but not always good, I've spent a lot of my life being nice, but not always kind. I have spent a lot of my life being nice, but not always loving. In fact, what God has been gently showing me and inviting me into, the realization that sometimes, not always, sometimes my niceness has been based in fear. Sometimes my niceness has been manipulative. And sometimes my niceness has been far too safe. And God has been inviting me into something else. And I want to just say, rest assured, he hasn't been inviting me into meanness. I haven't, or cruelty is, I hope, it's not, I hope that's not, sometimes the pendulum swings when you're learning things, so I'm trying to avoid that other extreme. Um, but it's clear that he hasn't been inviting me into niceness and that he's been inviting me into something much better, much harder, for me anyway, but much better. So, I want to take a look at a couple of scriptures, and um, I'm going to be going through some of these fairly quickly. There are thousands of scriptures about how we treat one another. 
um, in, in, in the Bible. Here's just a few. Ephesians 4 says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Luke 6, But love your enemies, do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. You are sons of the Most High. Proverbs 11, A man who is kind benefits himself, but a cruel man hurts himself. Colossians 3, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. Proverbs 31, she opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. There is a lot about kindness and a lot about love, but I couldn't find one verse that talked about nice. And maybe that's semantics, but I don't think so. What is clear from Scripture? Oh boy. Okay, I'm, they're, they're giving me control of this up here, so this could be scary. Okay, what is clear from Scripture is that relationships do matter. It matters how we treat one another, it matters um, for, for our relationship with God, our relationship with ourselves, and our relationship with other people. And this is actually not a great picture to demonstrate relationships. Because in this picture, you have a bunch of people that are together, but they're not connecting. There are a bunch of people next to one another, but in order for this picture to demonstrate relationships, you'd have to have people facing each other, interacting with each other, walking with each other, laughing with each other, maybe even fighting a little bit together. But oftentimes, at least in my experience, we settle for this because it's so much easier than the hard work that relationships require. Now, it's clear that scripture says that relationships are important, and I want to talk just a little bit about science. Those of you that know me know that I'm, I'm so interested in the way that brain works. I'm not an expert, I don't, I'm, don't pretend to be an expert in this field, but I love researching the way that science is kind of catching up to what God has been saying for ever. So, <laughs> So here's a quote from Daniel Goleman. This is from his book, Emotional Intelligence. And he says, our reactions to others and theirs to us have a far-reaching impact, sending out cascades of hormones that regulate everything from our hearts to our immune systems, making good relationships act like vitamins and bad relationships like poison. It turns out that when we are in relationships and we have the exchange of emotions, either positive or negative, we are actually altering the physiology of our bodies. In fact, um, there's a Christian psychiatrist and he said, we are so hardwired for connection that we come out of the womb looking, searching for someone who's looking for us. It, that, it's, it's, hard, it's in our DNA, we are hardwired. There's a field called interpersonal neurobiology and all it means is that good relationships are good. That's about it, but it's a big name for it because that's what we have to do in psychology. So, um, but in interpersonal neurobiology, it, it asserts that being understood as an adult has the same impact on our brain as being held as a child. When a baby is born and we look into that baby's eyes and we start to coo and we take care of it and we talk to the baby and, and we respond to the needs, we respond to the cries, the little brain is just growing and developing and the neural pathways are, are being created that help us to trust and to love and, and to learn and to sequence and to problem solve. And life isn't perfect, no parent is perfect, environments aren't perfect, so of course that doesn't happen perfectly. 
And for some people, there's actually quite a lot of damage because of caregivers that weren't able to be responsive. And that is very damaging. But the cool thing about redemption, the amazing thing about the way that God has made us, is that interactions as we are adults that are healthy and empathetic and real and honest and truthful and loving, that actually heals and repairs the neural pathways in our brain. I think that's amazing. And it's hard for me to not talk about that almost every time I'm asked to speak because God is so smart. It's just, you know, we, we knew it, but we know it. And um, so, oxytocin, let me just talk a little bit about this. Last year when I came here, I talked a little bit about the chemistry around fear, if you were here. I'm gonna talk about the chemistry around love a little bit tonight. Oxytocin is created in our brain and it's released throughout our body and it helps us bond with other human beings. We have to have it. High levels of oxytocin actually help reduce stress, anxiety. It helps long-term bring down high blood pressure, which is amazing. And even when we're hurt physically, when, if I have a cut, a wound, like on my arm, high levels of oxytocin, which come from good relationships, actually help me to heal faster. So this is, this is just amazing the way that God has made us. And so science would also affirm positive relationships are healing and they're very important. But here's the clincher. Sometimes we believe that positive relationships mean that they have to be nice relationships. Not necessarily good relationships. And that's what I really want to try to unpack with you tonight. And I'm going to do that using a story. Most of you probably remember where you were um, on the morning of September 11, 2001. Or maybe if you don't remember yourself, you've heard people talk about it. So I want to share a little bit about where I was. Um, I was here in Oregon. I, it was morning time. If, if you were here on the West Coast, you remember that it was before school started. My husband had already gone to work, and I was at home with our three kids. My boys were 14 and 11, and my daughter was eight years old. And my friend called me up, my neighbor, and she said, do you have the TV on? And I said, no, she goes, turn it on right now. I turn it on, we're watching the footage, what happened at the Twin Towers, and she said, are you gonna send your kids to school? I said, I don't know, are you gonna send your kids to school? And I had this feeling just at that moment, wow, there are mothers around the world that live with this almost daily. And I was really humbled by that. So I continued to talk to my friend and um, we decided to go ahead and send our kids to school. But before they went off to school, I'll, I'll never forget the way that my three kids responded. They re all responded very differently. My oldest son, who was 14, said, well, it looks like we're going to war and I'll be signing up. It was that fast, I kid you not. I mean, it was that fast. He knew, and the thing, I should have seen that coming. He's kind of been a soldier since you know, he's just always been a soldier. We tried to persuade him otherwise, didn't work. So it turned out, I mean, he did right after high school. He joined the army, he did a tour in Iraq, did a tour in Afghanistan. Um, my middle son, he was 11 at the time, in true middle child form said, could we just talk about something else? Could we, um, could we turn off the TV? I need to have a bowl of cereal. And, you know, he just, he, he, he just like, Let's just pretend this isn't happening. My youngest, my daughter, who was eight, said, I want dad to come home. 
I want you to call dad. I want you to have him come home. I want my dad. And I've thought so often about those three responses, and it occurs to me that when it comes to relational conflict, when it comes to tension in our relationships, I think we tend to do one of two extremes that my boys demonstrated. And that is we either go to war or we just ignore. And let me explain what I mean by that. Going to war looks something like this. We get into a relational conflict, or maybe it's not even a conflict, maybe it's just some tension, like relational tension that we feel. And some of us, our first gut response is to just kind of attack, maybe verbally, maybe passive-aggressively, but we do something behaviorally that just says, man, you are not going to treat me that way. And we just go after it. Now, some of us are a little more subtle, and we go to war in our mind instead. Okay, so we, we do things like, uh, we, we think these thoughts like, I cannot believe that jerk just did that again. I can't believe she said that. That is the last time he'll talk to me that way. Just wait till I get a chance to be sarcastic back. All of these things that kind of d demonstrate a go-to-war kind of mentality. And in going to war in our mind, it, it can also be kind of belittling the person or rehearsing a verbal attack that we wish we had the guts to deliver. <laughs> you know, we just keep it in our mind. And after a while, if we're, if we're sensitive to the Holy Spirit, we start to feel some conviction about that, and then we think, oh man, that is not a Christian way to behave, or that's not a Christian way to think. And so um, we kind of go to the other extreme, perhaps, and we just ignore. <laughs> and this is, this is the picture of chronic niceness. <laughs> I am in recovery for niceness, but... Um, and, I, and some of you, I just got to give a disclaimer. So some of you go, man, she's been nice to me. What does she really mean? That's just, it's not, it's not, I just, I'm, not, I'm just saying sometimes niceness isn't rooted in kindness. But um, so ignoring, so when we ignore, now this is a lot more Christian and it looks a lot better. Um, and it can stay under the radar a lot longer because um, people like nice girls because nice girls say yes. Um, can you help out with this thing? Yes. Um, I, I know you're really busy and you've got all your kids at home and you've got a full schedule and you're working, but could you please bring cookies? Yes. You know, this, this is what nice girls do. So, um, and the thing is, we think that we're peacemakers, but as it turns out, it's really more like peace fakers because it doesn't really work because underneath that is this resentment that's kind of growing, but we're ignoring it because we don't want to be mean. We don't want to go to war. We don't want to be a, a, a mean girl. We want to be a nice girl, and, and somehow we think that this is the alternative. And I want to point out a couple of myths. One of my colleagues at Corbin, Dr. Trammell, he wrote a book called Redeeming Relationships. And in his book, he talks about the myths that lead us to ignore or being a peace faker. One of the myths, disagreement is sin. Hmm. Or here's one. My relationships can succeed without confrontation. I can still grow without resolving conflict. <laughs> Good luck with that. Or this is maybe my favorite, real love doesn't confront, it forgives. That sounds really spiritual. Or here's one, agreement is necessary for unity. Whew, those are, those are kind of uh, sacred cows for some of us. For me, I know that I was living out of several of those. Um, and the extreme of ignoring 
clearly doesn't work, but neither does it work to go to war. And I think when it comes to this relational tension that we feel, um, the tension within ourselves going, how do I respond to this? Everything inside me is just churning. Um, I don't want to be unkind, I, and I don't need to ignore this. What do I do with this? Maybe my daughter that morning of 9-11 had the best suggestion. Maybe we just need to go to our dad. <laughs> um, I, I, have, I have asked God to speak into this, into my life. He has. And I want to talk a little bit about, where I'm going to take us to Philippians 4. And this passage in Philippians is, is probably most popular for the part where it says, whatever is good, whatever is noble, whatever is true, praiseworthy, think on these things. But I'm going to go a little bit earlier in that passage to verse 2. And I'm going to read this from the NIV. Here's what Paul writes. I plead with Yodea and I plead with Sinchi to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. I'll make an observation about Sinchi and Yodea, and I'm not sure I'm pronouncing those names right. They're hard to pronounce, but... My, my first observation is they must have been doing something right. The Philippian church must have been doing something right because they were working side by side with men and they were doing effective ministry. Um, Paul makes mention of these two women and says, I long for them, I plead with you, plead with them to have the same mind. He doesn't say necessarily that they need to agree with each other, although there's one translation that says that. I don't believe that's right. <laughs> I don't think that's correct. Have the same mind in the Lord. They were doing many things right, and there was a lot at stake, the fact that they, were in, that they were in conflict. There was a lot at stake. And he wants them to resolve this in a way that is healthy. And one of the things that strikes me is that these women had to have been close enough to even have conflict. And I asked myself one time, do I have deep spiritual friendships where I can risk disagreement and conflict or do I have a lot of polite interactions that require very little of me? I had to ask myself that hard question. Still asking it. So these women aren't getting along. Paul's concerned about it. And I believe that in the verses that follow, Paul gives us some amazing, some amazing insight if we will put it in the context of this relational tension. The next thing that he says is rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Whew, that's kind of a tall order. What does that mean to rejoice in the Lord always? Well, what it doesn't mean is rejoicing in bad situations, rejoicing in bad behavior, rejoicing in abuse, rejoicing in evil. I know it doesn't mean that, but what does it mean to rejoice in the Lord? What is it like to have our focus so much on Jesus and what he has done for us, that we're able to have that kind of posture in the middle of emotionally charged relational conflict. In my experience, the place of rejoicing in the Lord usually comes out of some pretty hard, painful things in our life. At least in mine, the things in my life that have been the most painful and difficult, where I basically got to the bottom of myself and said, God, all I have is you. Okay, I give up. I give up all I have is you. Out of that place has come joy. 
not a happiness, and you, you, you've heard sermons on the difference between that, but I'm talking about joy. Rejoice is a bold term. It's not a nice term. It's a bold term. It's almost a militaristic term, saying, I am choosing this. I am choosing to rejoice. One of the things that might be a sign that you're not rejoicing in the Lord when you're dealing with conflict is when you're trying to fix the other person. And that's so common. We do it. We've, I mean, I've done it. And so when we're trying to fix the other person, what that is doing is saying, I'm in control. Rejoicing in the Lord says you get to be in control. You get to be the one that convicts. You get to be the one that to, to bring direction and clarity into the situation, not me. I let go of control. Here's the other thing that rejoicing in the Lord does. It helps us let go of things that are really too minor to make a big deal out of. You know, we don't have to hash out every single little thing. There is wisdom in knowing what things to pursue with hard conversations and what things to let go of. Paul goes on to say, let your gentleness be evident to all. Okay, certainly this must be nice, right? Gentleness is niceness? I don't think so. Gentleness helps us appreciate the differences in other people, for sure. It helps us be open to learning something from other people who are different than us. Gentleness helps us humbly take responsibility for what it is we need to own in the conflict. There's always something. There's always at least one thing that we can own. That doesn't mean we take responsibility for somebody else's behaviors, thoughts, and feelings. And that's tricky. But gentleness allows us to take responsibility for where I, perhaps, have sinned against you. Gentleness allows me to disagree without attacking a person. Whew, yeah. So, sometimes we disagree, but we have to just prove that we're still right. We can't just kind of agree to disagree. Gentleness helps us cover that with, you know what? This relationship might be restored, but it might not mean that we agree. It might mean that it's restored, in fact, th that we just don't agree, and that's okay. And that's okay. Gentleness helps me speak the truth in love. About several years ago, I went back to Ohio, which is where I used to live, and my husband and our three kids, uh, we all went back to visit family. My husband is one of six children, so there's lots of nieces and nephews, lots of kids running around, and when we lived in Ohio, my kids were pretty small, and they connected with their cousins really well, but we went to the West Coast, and there were lots of years where they didn't connect, and um, we went back, had, had a great visit, came home to Oregon, and I found out something when we came back. My niece had wanted to ask me a question when we were in Ohio. She had wanted to ask me a question about whether or not she should make this scrapbook for my oldest son, because when they were small, they were really good friends. But it had been several years, and um, they were pretty different, time, space. She just wasn't sure that it would be really received well. So she went, instead of asking me, she went to my other son, my middle son, and the reason, in her words, I wanted to ask Aunt Stephanie, but she's so nice, I'm not sure she could have said no. I wanted to ask her if I should make this scrapbook, but she was so nice, I was afraid she wouldn't really tell me the truth. Ah, ouch. That was like a pivotal moment in my niceness recovery. <laughs> I just say, it was a come to Jesus, it, it really was. I sat there and thought, do I want to be the nice aunt or do I want to be the kind aunt that can still say the truth? 
Huh. And so God began to work. He had been working beforehand. Um, but he began to work in my heart saying, Stephanie, this is going to take a lot of work, but um, I, think, I think you'd rather be a good woman than a nice girl, right? Lynn Heifels has a book called Nice Girls Don't Change the World, which sounds really radical. It's actually just a short book, an easy read, and it's just her own journey of going from a nice girl to a good woman so that she could actually be effective for the Lord. Great read if you ever want to see it. All right, so that's gentleness. Um, gentleness also allows us to have some of those hard conversations. What I, what I gave as an illustration, actually, as I look back, could have been handled pretty easily, but sometimes we have to enter into hard conversations with people about something we might see in their life. Maybe the Spirit's kind of prompting us about that. I hope, I hope that you have at least one person that's safe enough in your life that you've invited to have hard conversations with you. See, my, my belief is that we can never uncover and discover all of our blind spots. I, I don't think we can do that on our own. I think it requires community. I think it requires relationships. I think it requires safe relationships, even if it's just one. I have a caution with that. Um, I will say, because sometimes I've heard people say, well, I'm just saying the truth in love, and they end up being pretty damaging, um, pretty, pretty cruel. And so my, my, my quick phrase is this, a nice smile does not cover up an unkind heart. So that's a caution around that. But with that caution, let me just say, God is calling us into something greater than just polite interactions that don't require a lot from us. He's calling us into some honest conversations and honest community where we have safety to speak into one another's lives. And you know why? Because the stuff that's there that we don't see is not bringing us freedom. And God wants to free us. <laughs> that's, that's just the simple truth. He wants to free us. He came to set us free. He came to set us free from the stuff that we don't even know about. Sometimes he reveals it by his spirit. And you know what I've seen? In good, healthy community, he reveals it through people who love us. So I encourage you to find a safe person for that. All right, Paul goes on to say, don't be anxious. Be anxious for nothing. Again, easier said than done. Um, how much time do we have? Okay, I've got 10 minutes. One quick thing about anxiety when it comes to relationships. Sometimes we are talking with someone or interacting with someone and we do feel uneasy. We might even feel a little anxious, maybe even a little fearful. Have you ever been in a conversation with someone or maybe you met someone and you're not sure why but the hair on the back of your neck goes up? Something's not right. Can I just say to you, trust that? <laughs> um, the, the Holy Spirit has, has given us, I believe that, he has given us that sense. Not every person is safe to be in a relationship with, okay? And we have different groups and life path to, to help with some of that. Um, and, and I just, I, I just want to say that as kind of a, um, not a disclaimer, but some, as I go into this area of anxiety, just keep that in mind that there are times when something really is off, okay? Pay, pay attention to that. It's better to be cautious and wait than try to push yourself saying, oh, what is wrong with me? I can't believe I'm feeling this way about this nice guy. He seems so nice. Um, pay attention to that. But 99% of the time, when we're dealing with relational tension and relational conflict, it's because we haven't addressed some of the fear in our own heart. When we go to war, for example, 
I believe that that anxiety is a fearful anxiety because we're afraid of being insignificant or being perceived as weak. When we ignore and pretend that everything's nice, it's because we fear rejection or disapproval or being alone. We really fear being unworthy, not enough, not good enough. And what I want to say about that is God wants to meet you there and God wants to set you free from that. And God is able to set you free from that. And I just want to speak that in faith tonight and to say he is able and he is willing. It is his desire. I do many things wrong in my life. I sin on a daily basis. And you know what? I can stand here before you and say I am worthy of love. I am worthy of God's love and I'm worthy of your love, even if you choose not to love me. That's kind of a bold thing to say, but you know what? I believe that God wants to take us there. I believe that God wants to take us there. And I'm still practicing it. I don't always feel that way. Doesn't matter, I'm still gonna practice it. I'm gonna practice saying I'm worthy. I might not feel like it right now. I might have thoughts in my head that try to disagree, but I'm worthy. The fear that underlies the anxiety when we get into relational conflict, we don't have to live with that. All right, now, Here's a question. Is God nice? Is he nice? Let's talk about the Garden of Eden. So Adam and Eve sin. They take the fruit from the tree, and there are a lot of consequences. Was God nice? No, <laughs> he wasn't. See, a nice God would have said, it doesn't really matter. It's okay. It's just a little sin. But, but you know, here, here's the thing. God set a boundary in that relationship. He set, a, he set a boundary in his relationship with us. And do you know why? Not to protect himself, but so that the relationship could stay intact. So that the relationship could be restored. See, Adam and Eve were running around in fear, crazy fear. God pursued them in love and gave them opportunity, and they responded in fear. So the structure of that relationship had to be changed so that the relationship could stay intact and be restored. That's not niceness, that is goodness. In our relationships, there are times where we set boundaries. And while they can protect us, and I think that there is a, definitely a place for that, here's what I would say. Setting boundaries in relationship is for the purpose of keeping that relationship intact and restoring it. It might not look like restoration in the way that, you know, things maybe don't go back to the way that they were, but that's, that's the purpose of boundaries. It's actually for the benefit of that relationship. See, it'd be, it's easier to say, okay, I'm just done with you. I'm cutting off that relationship. A boundary says, I want this relationship to stay intact. Something has to shift because there's no way it could be restored if it doesn't shift. That's what boundaries are. Okay, finally, Paul says pray. Pray. Pray with a thankful heart. Make your request known to God, and the peace of God will cover you. This area of prayer, well, I, I just, I'm excited for where our church is going in this area of prayer. I feel like God's kind of taken us to this next place in prayer. It's exciting. And what I have learned about prayer in terms of relational conflict is that if I am thanking God for that other person, wow, that's good for my soul. 
wow, that's good for my spirit. There, there, is a, there is something that comes over me that is important for me, and it's important for the other person, I think. But praying, thanking God for the strengths that the other person has, praying before I go into crucial, hard conversations, praying, listening, saying, Lord, do you have some next steps for me to take? Or maybe more importantly, just realizing that when I pray, whether I feel it or not, I'm in the presence of God. I'm in the presence of God. All right, finally we get to that verse that's, that this passage is, is probably most famous for. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. This is not denial. We're not thinking a bunch of thoughts to try to deny that we're in pain. This is not covering up. This is not chronic niceness. This is goodness. This is thinking thoughts that are true, thinking thoughts that are good. Here's, here's what I think correct thinking helps us with. Correct thinking helps us discern what conflict we can let go of and what we need to pursue with more conversation. Correct thinking helps us to disagree well with other people. Correct thinking helps us remember how much grace we have received from God, and it gives us the best opportunity possible to extend that grace to somebody else. Correct thinking helps us set boundaries in love. Correct thinking helps us learn from our mistakes. It helps us to go from niceness to righteousness. So I'm going to give us a few minutes um, at our tables to kind of chew on some of this and... Um, Go over a few questions. And you don't have to respond to all of these. Um, you, can, you, you can if you want, or you can just pick one. When it comes to conflict, do you typically go to war or just ignore? Or how would you like to respond to conflict? On a scale of 1 to 10, how well do you handle hard conversations, both initiating them and receiving hard information? And then finally, what steps might you take toward finding a safe person? One other thing I would add to this um, is this question. Where do you need God to show up in your life when it, when it comes to niceness, when it comes to conflict, when it comes to relationships? Where do you need God to show up? So we'll take um, a few minutes to talk at our table, and then I'll come up and transition us to some more worship when we're done. <laughs>